Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Really glad you're here. Just before I get going, I want to again remind all of us as we've moved into a new season that uh, the study notes uh, are at each door for this sermon today for your connect groups, your own studies. So if you want to stand up for a moment and grab them, you're welcome to do that as we get going today. I also want to publicly uh, thank Dave Adams for the amazing job he did over the last two weeks challenging us in the generosity series. He's not here. He's actually in Uganda right now. I don't know if some of you know this. He uh, gives volunteer time in Uganda helping lead leaders that works exclusively with those who have suffered the tragedy of war and now are widows and orphans. And he's giving leadership this week. So uh, be praying for him as he's, he's away. But today we're back into our Philippians series and we're going to be in Philippians chapter three. So if you've got your Bible, hard copy or virtually, I'd love you to turn there, please. And we're going to begin into you online. We want to welcome you this morning. Glad that you're joining us here or around the world. Well, I want to share another father moment with you. Every pastor speaks out of where they're at, and so you know where I'm at these days. And I got the great privilege a few weeks ago to do something I've been waiting to do my whole life. I sat down with my two little girls, my four-year-old and my two-and-a-half-year-old, and I looked at them and I said, I've got an announcement. And my wife and I were there and said this very important announcement. And you know, little kids, they lean right in and their eyes still sparkle because life hasn't dealt with them yet. And it's true, right? And they leaned right in, and, and, and I said, guys, um, we're going to Disney World. <laughs> now, I've been waiting my whole life, because you know I'm a Disneyholic, and um, I've openly confessed that. Well, it was just like an ad. Screaming erupted. Emma started running around the room out of control. Uh, Hannah started saying, princesses, princesses, we're going to drink with the princesses. Yes, we are. And then she came right to me. She has what the staff call the John look, and she looked at me, and she said, Come here. I'm like, yes, Hannah, I need to start packing. Up she went, <laughs> right? She's up. She's been packing, by the way, for three weeks. We have, honestly, three weeks. And Emma just kept running around the room saying, tea with Winnie the Pooh. I said, yes, we can work that out for you. No problem. We're going to do this. Just absolute elatement and excitement. And I can't wait to take them. I've got to remember, though, it's not my dream. It's theirs now. You know, get out of this. No, yeah. Uh, anyway, okay. So... As I was thinking about their reaction, just their childlike excitement, I I went, wow, we have a lot to learn from our kids as adults. My my girls, when they heard about this, this is Disney World. I mean, it's a great place. It's the best place on earth, sure. But it's not eternal, right? And and there's three things that caught me as, as I saw the reaction. Number one, they were expectant. Right when I said Disney, they leaned in and they were expecting that something good was going to happen. And they knew that it was going to be a positive thing. They knew that the knowing would be profound. And not only that, they immediately started to prepare. And as I watched these, these two little girls get on princess dresses and everything else, I said, where's this in my faith? What happened When I got old, er. (laughs) Because isn't this sometimes what the Christian life is supposed to look like? Are we not supposed to be waiting in anticipation for the one we know is so profound? 
Are we not supposed to be living our life under that auspice? Are we not supposed to know that when we do encounter him fully in the future and in part in now, it's an okay thing? When I said to my daughter, you're going to meet Winnie the Pooh, there was no fear in the wrong way. There was no anger. There was no distrust. She implicitly said it's going to be a good thing. And yet, so many of us here today who have been Christians for so long never look like this when it comes to Jesus. Oh, we love him but we do not trust him. We need to regain in this community an anticipation that Jesus is coming back, an anticipation that when he comes, even in like a revival-like experience, it's a good thing because he's a good God. Many of us have lost this joy and this hope, this anticipation, this knowing because life has ripped it out of us. Lost dreams and failed expectations and churches have let us down and we've let other people down. And then there's some of us here and online today, we, we've never had that at all because actually we're blind and we don't even know it. Paul, writing to this Philippian church, decides halfway through his grand book to stop and bring this back full force. Because he's so concerned that this keeps going, that joy is not stolen. Remember the theme this year is joy. Deep down satisfaction, not happiness. Inner peace, a deep soul level contentment, a lasting joy, peace between us and God. Now Paul at this moment in his life is moved under the impulse of the Holy Spirit to pen some of the most profound themes in the whole of the New Testament. Themes, of course, that if are embraced by Christian or not, will bring such joy to our tired and broken world, will bring back a childlike joy and anticipation and knowing. You know, the world, if you really think about it, starts and stops with Solomon's cry out of Ecclesiastes that all in the end is meaningless. And life without God is meaningless, of course, unless, of course, you encounter him. And you continue to encounter him. Paul is about to say that when you encounter the living God, time and time again as a Christian, it will produce an unnatural joy, an unnatural purpose, a hope that actually transcends circumstances. It's a hope that comes from outside of the human family, but it is created uniquely for the human family. To meet the living God for the first time or all over again changes everything. We've been reading through the Bible in a year, which has turned into a year and a half. <laughs> and I was reading through Job, and at the end of his experience, ordeal is maybe a better word, one verse struck me I'd never read before or had forgotten. Job 42.5, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. That is what Paul is about to talk about. Not just knowing God, but to really meet him will change everything. But to meet the living God for the first time or all over again, everything that we instinctually hold, all that we primordially gravitate to, will have to be abandoned. Jesus taught it to get life, we must lose our life, lose the life we think we have. See, Paul is about to discuss and say these words that the most admirable, the most powerful attempts of human privilege will fall short for the first encounter. And after you've met the living God, your joy in him can be stolen oh so very quickly. Paul writes these words in Philippians 3.1. Further, my, my brothers and my sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again. And it is, a notice the word, a safeguard for you. 
Back to this theme of joy, Paul's invitation, this call, this God-given command to joy is echoed again. The last two chapters that we've studied have outlined that joy is a heaven-sent gift that needs to be adopted into difficulty and identity. It's remaining steadfast in the faith and not giving in to fighting with each other even when persecution is taking place. It's loving each other in the midst of persecution and difficulty. It is living life with an understanding that yes, we are in the Lord. We are saved, that Jesus is with us. And as we suffer for the gospel in small or large ways, we relate to his sufferings. And it is also grounded in the idea that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to give us the fullest form of freedom that we don't have at this time. Paul says, I want you, Christian, to have joy. I want you to be deeply grounded in the unique and kind work of Jesus. I want this joy to be protected. I want this, so I'm going to safeguard you this morning. Why? 2,000 years ago, when Paul was writing a church just like ourselves, he begins to call out a group in the church that appeared Christian and were not. They were actually robbing people of joy. I love what one person said reflecting on this. No one can rob people's joy quicker than a, than a few, uh, few narrow-minded legalists. Paul is about to tell us that he himself was one of these people. He worked so hard to impress God for so much of his life, and he taught so many others to do it, and he robbed them of their joy. Paul says, I want to safeguard you. And the very next words he pens is this. So watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Wow, good morning. That is so harsh. And it is. Paul values our joy as Christians so much that he calls this one group out in the church that appear Christian and that are not. And he says, look, I'm going to call you for what you are. You are nothing more than a dog. Now, let me do some cultural work here this morning. Calling someone a dog was not a cuss word at this time. It's not calling someone a female dog. You all thought of the word. I can't say it. Good. It's not what it means. Nor were dogs at this time loved. They weren't your children. They weren't your best friends. They weren't pampered. They weren't loved. They weren't nurtured. They didn't have their own cemeteries. They were dirty, disease-caring scavengers. And all the cat people are like, nothing's changed, right? Yeah. <laughs> All the dog people are like, shut up. Yeah, okay, so dirty, disease-carrying scavengers. And Paul comes along and says, look, you are nothing more than a disease, spiritually disease-carrying scavenger that are ripping the joy out of the church, and I'm confronting you. Now, immediately, if you are following Scripture at all, you should be asking, well, John, who's the dogs? Well, the theologians now call them Judaizers. They were very early Jews that actually believed Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. But they started teaching this, that if any non-Jew wanted actually to meet God, they needed to trust in Jesus and also had to become strictly Jewish. So it was Jesus plus the Jewish law equals you get to become a Christian. And the biggest deal for them, of course, was male circumcision. And this, of course, streams all the way back to the very first book in the Bible, to understand this, you need to go back to Genesis 17.10. God chooses out of his sovereignty to call a man named Abram, the son of a moon worshiper, and make him Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And this is what he says. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision was the physical sign, the outward sign of the Jewish faith. But we always need to stop and ask the question, God, seriously, why circumcision? 
I mean, why did you have to choose the penis? Why not an ear, the nose, belly button? Why not team t-shirts? It would be a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Now, what's interesting about this is us that grew up in church just don't talk about this. We think it's weird, and so we don't ask. And, and other people who have never been to church before are like, circumcision, you're not going to do something, are you? Breathe, it's fine. So what's the point? Well, here's what one scholar put it. He said the surgery was symbolic, interestingly, of the sinfulness of humanity that was passed down generation to generation from Adam forward. So man at the very center of his nature is sinful and needs a cleansing of the heart. This graphic symbol of the need for removing sin became the sign of being a believing Jew. God uses the very organ that passes on not only physical life, but brings life and spiritual death and says it needs to be cleansed. But this meaning had been forgotten by Paul's time. Many people at this time, Jews, believe that circumcision actually secured salvation. Many famous rabbis, if you read them of the time, actually say, our rabbis say that no circumcised man will ever see, see hell. The Midrash, Tillam says, God swore to Abraham that no one who is circumcised should be sent to hell. And so these Judaizers come along and say, well, it's Jesus, but you've got to do this too. But do you remember when we walked through Romans together as a community? Paul wasn't talking to Christians or quasi-Christians. He was talking to his Jewish friends that they didn't understand what he was doing in Romans 2. And this is what he said in Romans 2.25. If you've got a Bible, flip over there quick. Romans 2.25, he says, Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you've not been circumcised. In other words, you have to obey the Ten Commandments and God's laws perfectly, and then the sign gets valid for you. But if not, you're not really a child of God. Failing to obey the law in this sense removes any value of the sign. He says in verse 26, If those who are not circumcised, non-Jews, could keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as they were circumcised? The one who's circumcised physically and yet, yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, you're a lawbreaker. In other words, Paul says, what the problem is in the Jewish nation is we actually have the Bible. They don't even have it. We've even got the physical sign. They don't have it. But if they turned around and obeyed the law, they're better than us. Why? Because we're all sinners. Paul keeps going and he says these things. You cannot count on circumcision. That's why he says in verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he's one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. I love what Chuck Zondal wrote when he said, which would you prefer? Think about it. An unfaithful spouse who proudly wears your wedding band or a mate who guards your shared intimacy with his or her life but doesn't wear a ring. The wedding band, of course, is circular gold, a symbol of eternal fidelity. It's supposed to be an outward symbol of what's actually going on in the heart. How foolish to think that the ring is the most important element of, of a union. Further, how crazy to think that actually a ring could keep a person faithful to their mate. Circumcision, he says, and a wedding band have a lot in common. They're supposed to be outward symbols of an inner conviction. Unfortunately, here's the uh-oh moment. Religion places undue emphasis on the symbol while ignoring what God's really about, the heart. Paul says, no man is a Jew if he's one outwardly in Romans 2. And circumcision is circumcision by the heart, by the spirit, but not, not by a written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. 
Really being a child of God, according to Paul, is not about physical birth or cuts on your skin or devotion to God's book. A real Jew, a real child of God, man or woman, it's an inward thing. Circumcision is really a heart thing. It's not a written code. And you only get this when you put your faith alone in Jesus' work given by the Spirit of God who moves in and changes you. Paul is going to say this in Romans and here in Philippians. Only those through faith in Christ who receive the Spirit of Christ make up God's true people. Implicit here is a radical redefinition of a religious Jew. You meet Yahweh, who we sang to today, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only through the face of Jesus, through his Spirit. That's the heartbeat of Paul. So, Paul now, back to Philippians 3.3, is dealing with this church that's having their joy stolen. And he says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in our flesh. We put our trust alone in Jesus, his coming, his birth, his perfect life, his death for us, his resurrection for us, his ascension to heaven for us, his forever prayer life for us, and his coming again. We trust in Jesus alone. We ground our confidence in Jesus' work alone, by his grace alone, and his power alone. And all this is given, he says, by the Holy Spirit. Now, as you've been noticing, and I have too, time and time again, Paul comes back to the Holy Spirit. We have to have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. You cannot know God without the Holy Spirit. You cannot see Jesus' work applied in your life without the Holy Spirit. We cannot live the life we're called to live without his power. Here's the deal. Paul says, you will be a joyful Christian if you do not grumble in church, you do not argue, you will not give into persecution, and you will walk out your faith in fear and trembling. He says, all of that will produce joy, but you will be able to do none of that without the Holy Spirit. Paul says, we are grounded in Jesus and his spirit, and then he does it. Here's where everything changes. He says, joy is found there, and we put no confidence in our flesh at all. Now, this should cause great liberation for some, great release and reprieve. God gets all the glory. God gets all the credit. Salvation is never a human deal. Human pride doesn't even make it into the front door. We don't trust ourselves for salvation. It's never Jesus plus. It's always Jesus, period. That's an amen moment. It's a significant thing. So Paul comes along to this church and says, these so-called Christians among you, you that are teaching it's Jesus plus circumcision plus being religiously Jewish, uh, sit down and let me school you. Let me tell you about my past. Because if you think you've got this down, you've got no clue. This, of course, would be like a painful flashback for Paul. So many lost years, so long that he thought he was all that and found that he was nothing at all. So long that he thought that he loved God, served God, represented God, was giving joy and found out he wasn't doing any of it. So this is what he writes. Listen closely, lean in. Though I myself have reason for such confidence, verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrew, in regards to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Thank you very much. He says, my history trumps your history any day. But let me introduce you to the rude truth about what you're teaching supposedly in Jesus' name. Now, sitting here in 2012, much of this loses its power for us. Much of this little thing makes no sense to us. But let one scholar speak to you. Hear what he says, because it brings it home. 
He says, if there was ever a Jew that was steeped in Judaism, that Jew was Paul. He was actually a Jew par excellence. He was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he bore on his body the badge and mark that he was chosen, part of God's people. He was of the race of Israel, it says. That is to say, he was the member of one nation that was in a marriage relationship with God, and no other nation on earth had it. The Scottish people didn't have it, sorry. The native Indians, the Arabs, no one else had it. The Jews had it. And he said, I'm one of them. But not only that, it was deeper than that. He says that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I had never caught this. I went, well, who cares if you're from the tribe of Benjamin? What's the point? Well, here it is. The tribe of Benjamin had a unique place in the history of Israel. It was from the tribe of Benjamin the first king of Israel came. Saul was a Benjamite. Not only that, Benjamin, the actual Benjamin, was the only one of Joseph's son, uh, sorry, of Jacob's sons born in the promised land. He was the first one born in the promised land properly. And not only that, Benjamin during times of war had a unique place. The great war cry of Israel used to be this, before, before you, Benjamin, we go. Like Benjamin was in front of them. That was the war cry. And so he comes along and says, I'm not only part of Israel, I'm part of the elite group in Israel. And then he says, by the way, I'm also part of the aristocracy. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And here's what this meant. 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, Jews had actually lived in a diaspora. They lived right across the Roman Empire. And many of them couldn't speak Hebrew anymore. Many of them had to read in Greek or other languages. But Paul comes along and says, please, I'm not one of them. I speak Greek, but I also actually know the language of our fathers. And he says, oh, by the way, I was a Pharisee too, more than a devout Jew. I was one of the separated ones who forsworn all normal activities to dedicate my life to keeping the law. And I have done it with such care that actually, according to that standard, I'm blameless. See, Paul knew Judaism at its height, at its depth. He knew it from the inside and the outside. He'd gone through every experience that could bring to any man supposed joy. So let me break it down this way. Paul, in his day, is like the person who got the Pulitzer for writing, or the Oscar for acting, or the Victoria Cross for military bravery, or the gold medal at the Olympics, or the Nobel Peace Prize. Like, this guy is the real deal. And then he shows up and says... So you think you so-called Christians, you Judaizers, you think that being a religiously strict Jew plus Jesus is what this deal is all about? Well, not one of you can touch me. And man, have you missed the point? See my pain, see my tears, see my regret. I'm like a dad watching a teenage son do every stupid thing I did. And I keep telling you, don't go there. Why? Because I'm a strict dad? No, because you're going to lose your joy. It is not going to produce life in you. It is going to produce death in you. And so Paul comes and says in verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever my achievements, my gifts, my former advantages, I now see them for what they are. They are loss, period. Now the language comes from the marketplace. It's like religiously saying this this morning. I lost everything. I lost my savings, my house, my RSPs. I lost my cottage, both cars. I lost my boat, my kids, my wife left me. It's all done. I am in the great depression. But then he would say, this depression is profoundly good because it brought me to the place where I began to see that I was blind and now I actually can see. 
Paul says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Notice, and catch this, Christian, please. He goes farther. He says all things lose value in the sense that they become secondary to actually encountering Jesus. They lose position, value, and power. Paul says all of that's true because I actually not know about Jesus. I know him. Let me say that again. I don't know about Jesus. I know him. Knowledge in the Bible isn't head knowledge. It's not just that we sing about him or say the Apostles' Creed or know that he's God in flesh. It's relationship. It's personal encounter. It's where we actually get our language for sexual intimacy from. A wife knows her husband. A husband knows her wife. You cannot be a Christian and not know Jesus. You cannot be a Christian and not know Jesus. You've got to be in the place where you've encountered him. Now, Paul's not saying everything he did was wrong. He's not saying that the Old Testament is evil or all the stuff he did was wrong. The problem was his attitude and where he placed it became so wrong. Persecuting the church, yeah, that was a bad thing. But he lifted them up. And then he says this, verse 8, second half. I consider all of that, he says, everyone ready? Garbage. That I get to gain Christ or I may gain Christ. Now, garbage is a really strong term. Actually, surprise everyone, it's a cuss word. Paul swears in the Bible. There you go. You get nervous laughter. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, it's true. He does. It's a vulgarity. It means crap. I'm not going to use the real word that I want to use this morning because I don't want the email. So, no, I'm serious. The word here is that strong. It's like a rap video. We'll just bleep it out. So, he says, all of that is crap. It's excrement. All the stuff that the world would say is so profound. Oh my goodness, Paul, you've got like double PhD. doesn't matter. It's crap. It's what dogs would eat in the streets. It's garbage. The point is, this is how he viewed his profound resume after encountering the living Jesus. He says, I consider all of that garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, is which through, which, which, that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, informed trust. I'm not saved by obeying the law. My right standing is by God's work on my behalf. By putting my confidence in Jesus, I'm in right standing with God because I put my faith now in another. Am I called to do good works? Paul would say, church, C4 church, hear me. Oh, yes, we are, more than we're doing. But our good works don't get us relationship. We walk in relationship. Good gifts never get us in God's good books. They're an evidence we already know him. I love how Eugene Peterson translated this in the message, what a gift he is to the church, when he wrote this, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important, they're gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my interesting word, master. Firsthand, everything I once thought was going for me is now insignificant. It's dog done. I've dumped it all in the trash so I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. I don't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind of faith that comes from trusting in Christ, God's righteousness. 
You want to get Paul's heartbeat? Here it is this morning. C4 Church, you online listen. Don't you dare go back to the thing you've been saved from, Paul would say. It's like a bad hangover. Run. You're not drunk anymore, and you don't need the headache the next day. You can lose your joy as a Christian. And he says, people are going to promote the loss of your joy, and they're going to do it, ready, in Jesus' name. Paul says, run. You already have freedom. Don't give up what you've been given. And then Paul utters these words that should cause nervousness in our very middle-class crowd. Because once he tells us about the encounter, once he's talked to us about the joy that's given, once he wrestles with this church in us to preserve joy, then he says this, I want to know Christ. And remember, he knew him already. He says, though, I want to know him. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings, become like him in death, and so somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to live out this encounter that I've had. He's saying the power of the resurrection, the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus physically from the dead is available today. And I want to know that in good and bad. And I want to know that in suffering. Joy, he would tell us, comes from knowing Jesus. Joy comes from accessing power, the power of the resurrection in our everyday life. Joy is found when we suffer for Jesus' cause. Joy will come in the greatest way when Jesus returns and when he comes and makes the new heavens and a new earth and he redeems this world where there will be no more pain, suffering, death, no more war, no more abuse, no more misunderstandings between us, no more famine, no more injustice, no more death or religion, no darkness, no wrong desires. There will be no more breakdown in the family or the environment or in ourselves. We will encounter Jesus. And he says, we've got that in part, but he's coming back and joy that's coming with him is unbelievably profound. He says, knowing Jesus and knowing resurrection is where joy is found. No, for some of you that are online with us today, some of us who are sitting here, some of you have the title Christian. You could even be members here. Some of you don't, and you're here seeking God comes to you at this moment and gently asks you a question. Why do you continue to trust in everything but me and my son? Why do you continue to live your life? Interesting, I didn't see the video before. Why do you live your life worshiping everything but my son? Have you ever considered here today that there is a danger of your high achievement which will not only rob you of joy, but actually will spill over into eternity. You that trust in you, you that trust in your education, you that trust in your history or your race, you that go to your past achievements, you who actually are serious about your looks, you who do good acts all the time, you who are religiously good people, you who are philosophy-based, who actually work hard at knowledge, you that build worldviews, you that trust in you or what you do, be warned. For what you put your ultimate trust in will determine if you have joy now. What you put your ultimate trust in will determine if you actually meet the living God. And what you put your ultimate trust in will determine if you get eternal life or you do not. 
The decisions we make in this life ripple into eternity. Martin Luther, the grand reformer, gave up actually a very privileged upper middle class life to become a monk. And if there was anyone who was deeply religious, it was him. Actually to a fault in some ways. And then he encountered the living Jesus years later in 1535. He's speaking at a university, actually preaching out of Galatians. And he summarizes what so many of you need to hear today. Thinking on Paul, he says, when Paul uses the word flesh, it means the highest form of righteousness, wisdom, worship, religion, understanding. It's all that we are capable of producing ourselves. He says, a monk, though, is not made right before God by his order, nor a priest by the mass or canonical hours, nor the philosopher by their wisdom, nor the theologian by their theology, nor the Arab by reading the Quran, nor the Jew by reading Moses. In other words, he preached this so long ago. No matter how wise you are or how righteous men may be according to reason or religion, with all of that, works, merits, mass, righteousness, acts of worship, they are never made right with God. Another person recently wrote these words, those who claim that salvation comes with Jesus and other things often fail to appreciate how desperately sinful humanity is and how humanity is absolutely dependent on God for salvation. Paul, in this passage, is so authentic, so transformative, and he says, I want to tell you my history. Look at all the stuff I've listed Instead of saying it's all okay or it's all good, he uttered that one little word that changes everything. But, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider for the sake of Christ their loss. Now some of you, if you're being authentic and honest yourself, should be saying, don't you dare say but. There is no but. Because if there is one, then all my fantasy and all my work and all I've longed for and believed in will die. And then what am I going to left with? Don't you dare say this. Don't you dare say everything I've done is meaningless. I am not lost. I'm not bankrupt. You're telling me that everything that I've trusted in and thought was right was wrong. Everything I've trusted in, everything I thought, everything that I've brought advantage to myself with other people or myself or God that appears advantage, you're now saying is disadvantage? And Paul would come to you humbly and say these words, in the light of eternity, absolutely. Salvation comes at God's initiative through faith in Jesus. Jesus is teaching is so radical, so profound, so difficult. He said these words, and Paul is only echoing them this way. To gain life, you have to lose your own. God is coming to some of you this morning and saying that you are blind and you are bankrupt, and all that you hold up and all you put your trust in will never lead you into eternity, will never give you joy in this life, and will never allow you to know him. The question is, as we give response in a minute, will you be willing to say like Paul did, I consider everything I've done lost for the sake of knowing Jesus? Many of us have done that. We're not blind anymore. The vast amounts of us probably are no longer in that place. We're free. But our lives, interestingly, are not living up to the freedom or joy that supposedly we're supposed to have. As I hang out with myself and many of you, I actually think many of us have spiritual hangovers. Joy, relationship, freedom, encountering God on a regular basis just don't knock our spiritual lives. 
Actually, our, much of our spiritual life looks more like headache, regret, guilt, shame. Yesterday's spiritual pub night, our formal spiritual st- state is still affecting us and still stealing joy. We're not blind anymore, uh, but our spiritual life doesn't have clear sight. It's like we've got the thickest form of prescriptions on and we don't even need them. Now, some of you have never been drunk or high and experienced the next day, which is great. Some of you have, and that's difficult. But many of us spiritually in this church have been hungover for years. The hangover hangover seen in our actions. Many of us here will know we're not saved by what we do or what we have or who we are. We know that we're saved by Jesus alone, and we'd say we know it. You could say that you're positionally, everything's great with God, but your everyday life is not caught up to your right theology. And here's how this has worked out. Listen, lean in. This happens in two ways. The first sign of a hangover spiritually in your life where there's no joy is you still live like you need to impress God. You still live every day like you need to make sure you're okay with him. That's a hangover. The other is knowing that you don't need to gain God's love. You're like, man, I'm not one of those people. But actually, you live your whole life through achievement to get joy and identity you're supposed to find in Jesus, but you don't trust him enough to give it to you, so you need to produce it. Hangover. Here's the grand concern as one of your pastors. Many of you have right positional theology. You're saved, but no joy. Someone has come and robbed your joy. You love Jesus, yes, but you do not trust him for what he has promised to give you in this life. Is achievement wrong? It's not. Is working hard wrong? No, we need more of that actually in our culture. Doing things for God is not wrong. But the problem is if they are ends in themselves, they become idols. Some of you hear this today. When you still act or think or say, I need to work hard to make sure God likes me, or I need to keep in his good works, or I need to earn his love, or his love is so conditional, I better just go up one more time, or I need to serve harder or or do more, you are experiencing a spiritual hangover. Others of you are giving your whole life, you're, you're Christian atheists, really, you theologically have it all right, but you, didn't live, you don't live your life at all like he's involved. You give your life and your time to everything but where joy is found, which is Jesus. Again, Chuck Swindoll, reflecting on this whole issue, talking about the dog, said, their message, if they come to you, is full of exhortations to do more, work harder, witness longer, pray with greater intensity, because enough is never enough. He says, they're evil workers. They're going to steal the joy you may even have. And then he wrote these words, I would also add, Ready? Lean in. When you never know how much is enough to satisfy God, you are always left in a continual state of shame and obligation. Your mind never rests, and you never, ever get relief. Here's the truth. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're saved by grace, by the election of God. The work of Jesus on the cross is given to you. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You will never be more holy than you are right now. You will never be loved more than you are loved right now. God comes through this passage and says to some of you, you're blind, repent, and let me give you joy. To another whole group of us here in online, he comes and says, you have no joy because you continually spin your wheels, believing that you have to earn something. I've said it's finished. And others of you, he comes and says, you have no joy because you live your life outside of me. You theologically agree and you come to church, but your identity, your joy, and your lifeblood is not in me. It's in everything else. 
Spiritual hangovers. Here's my declaration. Jesus wants the hangovers to end at C4 Church. And then Paul utters those last words. And they're to all of us as Christians. And I want you to think about this carefully before we respond. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I've mentioned this, and I want to mention this again. If anyone knew, Paul, if anyone knew Jesus, Paul did. Much more than any of us. And yet Paul comes back and he says, I want to know Christ. See, here is again a small summary of what we've been praying for for two years. This is when the everyday average Christian stops for a moment in the middle of their chaos, whether they're doing well or not well, and just hears the word of God. I want to know Christ. Jesus, I want to know you no matter the cost. Come get me. I want to know the power of the resurrection. Many of you resist this. The power of the resurrection is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is when individual by individual and corporately we say to the Holy Spirit, I am not afraid of you in the wrong way anymore. I will not put a box on you, Holy Spirit. I welcome your character in my life. I welcome your gifts in my life. I know you freak me out, but come get me. I want to know the power of the resurrection in my marriage. I want to know the power of the resurrection in my family. I want to know the power of the resurrection with my kids, in my connect group, in this church. I want to know that there's a real God who's alive still. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I will not let fear stop you anymore. Paul says, I want to know Christ, and I know him, but I want to know him more. I want the power of the resurrection. I want the Holy Spirit to do whatever he must, whether it makes me uncomfortable or not, does not matter. It's his will, not mine. And then he prays this prayer that freaks every one of us out. I want to know the sufferings of Christ. You want to talk about a real personal renewal in this church? A profound revival that shakes us to our core. An awakening where thousands of unbelievers come to faith. Paul says, no Christ, no limits. No the power of the Holy Spirit, no reservations. And then say this, I will even suffer for your cause. I will suffer for you, Jesus. I want to know. I want to participate in your sufferings. And not only that, I want to have a death like yours. Do you remember what Jesus said just before he died? I don't want this cup. And then he turned around and says, no, but your will, Father, not mine. And then he says that I want to know resurrection. Paul comes through Holy Scripture and says joy is real and it is real because it's found in him. Some of you must repent and meet him for the first time. Others of you need to give up the treadmill that you've been on. And all of us need to get in the place where we'd willingly, as middle-class evangelicals, pray the prayer, I will know Christ and I will not reserve. I will know the Holy Spirit, whatever he needs to do. I will suffer for Christ. I'm willing to do that. I want to be like him in his death, which is other-centered at its very core. And I will know the resurrection in part and in the future. We're about to celebrate communion this morning. And as the team comes, I'm going to give opportunity for us to pray in three different ways. But this is, this is difficult stuff. And we should not come to the communion table lightly after hearing this. I mean, because... The communion table represents the foundation of what Paul has just taught.
So let's take a moment. Why don't you get yourself in a posture of prayer, however you need to respond. We say that some of you need to kneel, some of you need to cover your face, some of you need to raise your hands, some of you need to stand. Some of you may want to take your shoes off, however you want to deal with it, that's fine. And let's take a moment to pray and then we'll take communion together. So a few things, Lord, out of this passage that's so very difficult. First of all, for us who are blind among you, we've put our trust in everything but you our whole lives. I pray that you'd now move in. And if you're that person that you've realized that you are blind, you are like Paul, putting your trust in everything and everything else except Jesus. You're religious or good or kind or moral or whatever, but you've never trusted in Christ alone. Just pray this. I repent. I'm sorry. I've lived my whole life without you. And I want to consider all things lost so I can meet you, Jesus. Come and save me from my sin. Forgive me. I consider it all a loss so I can have eternal life and know you now. For others of us who, we've got that down, but we have lived our life always trying to impress God or living outside of God's bounds, trying to find joy everywhere else, even as Christians. And if that's you, repent. Say, Jesus, I want real joy. I really do want joy. And forgive me for going to other places, trying to trust in myself. Forgive me for thinking I have to impress you all the time or do good works to make sure I'm in your good books. Forgive me for not believing what you've said over me. And others, if you need to pray, Lord, forgive me for living life and not even involving you. Forgive me and move in and do something different. But the real prayer is the dangerous one the last one I want to know Christ Jesus you're welcome in our church I want to know the power of the resurrection Holy Spirit you are welcome in our church and I don't even know how to utter this because I don't know the implications but Jesus We are willing to suffer for your gospel and for who you are. Help us to understand and do that. Help us to be like you even in our life and in our death. Other-centered. And Lord, our hope is in the physical resurrection. I pray for renewal in this church personally. I pray for revival in this church that Christ would be glorified and we would be different, changed people. And I pray for an awakening in our area that we've never seen where many people would meet the Jesus that we love and has given us joy. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.